Our cases here at Rocky Mountain Red-Handed involve physical, mental, and emotional trauma. Please listen with caution and care. Reach out to 988, the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, if you or someone you love needs help. No one is alone. The Rocky Mountains hold many mysteries. Millions of people enjoy the natural beauty, but some come across the hidden dangers. This is Rocky Mountain Red-Handed. I'm Melanie, here with my dear friend, Becky. The stories we share are remembered by some, but forgotten by many. Let's dive in to Rocky Mountain Red-Handed. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Rocky Mountain Red-Handed. We are so happy to have all of you here with us today. Yes, hello, hello. We have got such an exciting announcement. Yes, we do. We've got the coolest stickers, brand new stickers for you, and we want to give them all away. Yes, we are so excited. You can stick them onto your Stanley, your water jug, your laptop, anywhere you want. We just want you to represent us to all of your friends. Yes, so go on our socials. You'll see them, Mel. You're going to post some pictures, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. I think we have a couple up already, and we might post a few more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we just want to give them all away. Yes. So go follow our Instagram, which is at Rocky Mountain Red Handed. And you can also check us out on Facebook. And then our Twitter is at Rocky Mountain Red Handed Podcast. Yes. So this is all you have to do to get one. Okay. All you have to do is send us an email or send us a DM and give us your name and address. Yes. And our email is Rocky Mountain Red Handed at gmail.com. So this is just us sending you a sticker showing us your, our thanks. We're not trying to gather information. We are not going to share it, anything like that. We just want to send out our stickers and get our name out there. Yes, exactly. So we know that you will love it. It's got like a red thumbprint. So in big blue letters, it says, keep your hands clean. Yeah, they are so cool. We're so excited. You want one. We want everyone to have one. So, yeah. so Mel, since you're so good at it, will you share those socials one more time for us? Instagram is at Rocky Mountain Red Handed. Uh, you can find us on Facebook and then Twitter is at Rocky Mountain Red Handed Podcast. And then our email is Rocky Mountain Red Handed at gmail.com. And we'll also put those in our description so that you can check those out. As yes, well. for sure. So, well, if you are new to our, our podcast, we want to say welcome, welcome. We have a ton of new listeners, Mal. Yes, we that makes us so excited. We just want to let you know that we're going to be having another fun giveaway. This is in addition to our stickers. So keep your ears out for that. That will yes. be coming up soon. Yes. Uh-huh. If you missed the first getaway at our launch of the podcast, don't worry. We've got another one coming up. Um, first, everyone needs to first get a sticker. Yes. Mm-hmm. We will be announcing this new giveaway for RMRH t-shirts in the near future. So just make sure you're subscribed on your platform of choice and follow us on social media so that as soon as we post that information, you will be ready to enter. Yes. So for sure. Well, we've had a lot going on in our Rocky Mountain states this past week. We have had so much going on. We Mm -hmm. just received the jury's verdict on Lori Daybell's trial, and she was found guilty. Thank goodness. Yeah, I don't think anyone was terribly surprised about that verdict. But um, and just let you know, we will be covering that soon. We've had a lot of requests for it. Yes. And to be honest, it's kind of been just... I'm so sick of seeing that lady's face. So I want you to know I'm starting. We're just going to do an overall view of the trial and we're just going to let her go sit in prison. Yeah. She's Mm -hmm. a terrible person. Mm -hmm. Um, And one case that we just want to bring to everyone's attention and one we feel really could be a big one. um, We got a DM from Heidi on Instagram. Thank you, Heidi. Yes. We want to say thank you to all of our friends reaching out all over. It is so fun having people watch their local news, watch their local state news, and let us know what's going on. So we appreciate that. Thank you, Heidi, for letting us know about this one. She was fast. She She was. It was like within like 15 minutes or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So we are talking about the new case against Corey Richens in Park City, Utah. Yeah, and we're just going to give you a quick overview of that case before we start jumping to our episode today. Exactly. And when there's more information, we will, of course, do an entire episode. We'll keep you guys, you know, in the loop. We'll keep it going on this one. Yeah, this is probably going to be a big one. So Corey is an author of multiple children's books, specifically written to help children understand the grieving process. 
She co-wrote these books with her children to help them understand and process the death of their father. So Eric Richens, who was Corey's husband, died March 4th, 2022 of a fentanyl overdose. So Corey Richens was charged with one for one count of first degree felony of aggravated murder, along with three second degree felony counts of possession with intent to distribute a controlled substance. Yeah. And of that controlled substance would be fentanyl. Would be the fentanyl. Yep. Mm-hmm. So the arrest warrant is just about four pages long. It's not very long. So this case is definitely still in the works. But what they did include in the arrest warrant is pretty solid. Yeah. Corey Richens told police that at about 11 p.m. on March 3rd, 2022, she made her husband a Moscow mule to celebrate a closing of a house for her business. Uh, She was in the business of flipping houses. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Then she said she fell asleep with one of her children due to a night terror that the child was having. She said she woke up at 3 a.m. and went back into her bedroom to lay down with her husband. Yeah, she said that she felt her husband and he was cold to the touch. So at that point, she called 911. So here's where it gets really fishy, Mel. She told police that she left her phone plugged in by her bed and didn't take it into the child's bedroom, which I think a lot of us like put our iPhones on the charger right there by our bed so we can see it at night, right? Yeah, Mm -hmm. for sure. So yeah, her phone showed being unlocked and locked several times. There was movement recorded on the phone and some texts being sent, but then they were deleted. They were promptly deleted. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's really interesting with iPhones and phones these days, we can see everything that's going on, which is crazy. Everything. Yeah. Yeah. So the Emmy reported finding five times the legal limit of fentanyl in Eric's system. And uh, the Emmy was able to say that, yes, this was ingested orally. Yeah. So the police obtained a warrant for electronic devices and guess what they found? Let me guess. Was it fentanyl? Yes. Mm-hmm. So uh, Corey was purchasing fentanyl. She texted a contact named CL in the warrant. She purchased hydrocodone at first, but then stepped it up to fentanyl on several occasions. Yeah. The most recent drug purchase was on February 26th. And Eric was killed on March 4th. So we're talking days before this happened. Also, Eric told friends and family that he believed his wife was trying to poison him, which is so crazy. In fact, his family told investigators that Eric Richens warned them that if anything should happen to him, she, meaning Corey, his wife, was to blame. Yeah, this is just the tip of the iceberg in this case. Yeah, that's right. There's so much going on in this case. I mean, we've got EMTs knowing the scene didn't look quite right. We've got life insurance policy changes. I mean, there's a lot more. So I am researching this right now. We will pull a great episode together with all the information released. Yeah, so we will be covering it with obviously more information for you. Mm -hmm. So in the meantime, we've got an incredible case for you today. Yep, we do. This isn't just one case. This is actually the story of five different people. Do you want to get us started, Beck? Mel, when I was writing this episode, I was thinking about times in my life where I've gotten, quote, that feeling, that like natural instinct of survival that we all have, whether you call it, you know, good vibes, good vibes, bad vibes, karma, um, God, a higher power. Have you ever gotten that feeling when you're around someone that you need to get away as fast as you can? You know, I probably have that feeling too often. I probably just like freak myself out, but I remember as a teenager, and I don't do it so much now because keys are different, but I always walk like in parking lots with my keys between mm-hmm. my fingers. Mm-hmm. I taught my daughter that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I definitely have gotten that feeling. How about you? Yeah. I've, I've got what popped into my head is specifically, I used to um, work with um, uh, addicts in recovery and they were all such good people. But I remember, I mean, I worked with hundreds of them. I remember one person, I just got like bad vibes off of them, yeah. you know? So, and I hate to be you know, judgmental or whatever, but I did, I I felt like I did have like that inner instinct of like, this is not someone you want to spend time with. Yeah. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Well, today we are going to talk about five young people from Lewis Clark Valley who went missing within just three years of each other. Um, This happened over 40 years ago. Yeah. This is the story of Christina White, Kristen David, Christina Nelson, Brandy Miller, and Stephen Persall. The Lewis-Clark Valley is the home of Lewiston, Clarkston, and Asotin. These cities sit on the banks of the Snake River and the Clearwater River. 
The small town vibe is strong in these towns, which makes them so enchanting. They offer the best of the Northwest. The valley straddles Idaho and Washington State, but the valley feels as if it's one isolated and protected from the outside world. Yeah, that is until 1979. Christina White disappeared from Asotin, a town of just 1,000 people. The adults, the kids, the teens, they all had a freedom to live their lives without the fear that many cities have. You know, those larger cities have just that feel of danger. Yeah, kids rode their bikes and played after dark. They roamed the street without looking over their shoulders. Parents didn't worry if their kids would return safely. They always did. In Asotin, everyone knew everyone, and if you got into trouble, your mama would have received a call about it before you even walked through the door that evening. Small towns really watch out for each other. <laughs> My husband grew in a town like that, where if they, you know, ditched school or got into trouble, he would walk in the door and his mom would already know. And he's like, how do you know, mom? And she would say, I've got eyes all over town. <laughs> yeah, all of her friends. That's awesome. Yeah, so those small towns watch over after each other. So Christina was on the cusp of her teen years. She was giggly and loved her time with her friends. She loved pranks and making people laugh. She loved being outdoors and would spend the warm months on the river playing and walking along the shoreline. So on April 28, 1979, Christina, her mother, and her little sister headed to watch the parade for the Asotin County Fair. After the parade, Christina's mom and sister dropped her off at a friend's house. Uh, this friend's name was Rose. Yeah, Christina took her bike along with her so that she could go back to the county fair um, that day and spend some time with her friends. You know, growing up, I didn't really ever go to the county fair, but I have taken my kids a couple times down here, and it's super fun to take them. It is really, really fun. They've got fun stuff affairs. Yeah. The last time Christina's mom saw her daughter was watching her walk up to Rose's front porch. Christina knocked on the door and waved goodbye to her mother. On the day of Christina's disappearance, the police have contradicting accounts of who was at Rose's house. Yeah, Rose lived with her mother and her mother's boyfriend. And the boyfriend of the mother, um, the police believe that he was there, but there has been information saying he wasn't. Police records show that he was not at work that day, but they do know that Christina did spend a good portion of the day with Rose at her home. Yeah, later in the day, Christina phoned her mom just to check in, and she told her mom that she was not feeling well due to heat exhaustion. She hadn't stayed well hydrated and was feeling really fatigued. Kids can do that sometimes. They yes. forget to drink water. Her mother told her to get a cool towel and wrap it around her neck, you know, on the back of your neck, and just rest a while. Then when she felt better, Christina was to hop on her bike and come home. Christina left for home, and she was never seen again. Tom Pryor was chief of police in Asotin. He had been on the job for about six months when Christina disappeared. I can't imagine how overwhelmed he must have felt. Yeah, that that's a lot to only be there for six months and then take on a missing child. Yeah. Um, so Chief Pryor assured Christina's mom that he would find her. So the entirety of the Asotin PD set out to find Christina. They spent that entire night scouring the town with spotlights and flashlights. Neighbors joined in and all seemed hopeful that Christina would be found, you know, just riding her bike, came around the corner. You know, they were expecting her to show back up. Yeah. No one thought Christina was a runaway. She was a happy little girl and none of her friends had any knowledge of family problems or Christina saying that she wanted to leave ASO in. So runaway did not seem like a possibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the entire town worked together to do all they could alongside Christina's parents. Christina's father even had a friend with a helicopter take him up in the sky, and they did numerous flyovers of the valley, the rivers, and towns, just trying to search for Christina from this bird's eye view. Yeah, within a week or so of Christina's disappearance, some of her school papers were found on the outskirts of town by the Flynn family farm. Carl Flynn found the assignments on the edge of a horse pasture, all of which were in good condition. They were not destroyed, weathered, or waterlogged. Yeah, these few school papers are the only physical evidence the police have been able to locate. So what do you think, Mel? What do you think about these papers just on the edge of town? I don't know. It's so it's so weird because they could have been blown from a lot of different places. I feel like my kids drop papers all mm -hmm. the time. So it's hard to say where they came from. I wish we knew if she had her backpack that day. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I It may just be a red herring. I'm not yeah. sure. Yeah. Christina nor her bike has ever been seen since the day she disappeared. 
Detective Jackie Nichols with the Asotan County Sheriff's Office has been working on the Christina White case for over 10 years. She keeps Christina's picture on the bulletin board in her office so she sees her face every day. A lot of the time, Detective Nichols does her work on Christina's case after hours and while she's at home in the evenings. Talk about dedication. Yeah, her current caseload is so exhausting, but she makes as much time as possible to work on Christina's cold case. So today's episode is all thanks to the work of Detective Jackie Nichols. She is the reason these cases are back in the spotlight. Detective Nichols has worked for years building these cases, whether they are in her jurisdiction or not, and has really breathed new life into the investigations. And can I just say, in the short time that we've been podcasting, I am so excited that there are so many amazing detectives and investigators that are women. I know. We we love supporting women, and it's so awesome to see them in these in these roles. Yes, for sure. So, um, Asotan did not go back to normal. After Christina's disappearance, their normal was gone. The town just felt different. The children were not awarded the same level of freedom that they had really enjoyed before Christina's disappearance. Yeah, parents worried and didn't let their kids ride their bikes or run around town like like before, their freedom was just gone. Yeah, the level of comfort and familiarity had really just changed. So just two years later, on June 26, 1981, the Lewis Clark Valley had to face another loss. Kristen David, who was 22 years old, set out on a three-hour bike ride from Moscow to Lewistown, Idaho. So Kristen was a student at University of Idaho. She called her mom the night before her disappearance and said she was planning on riding her bike from Moscow to Lewiston, which is about 30 miles, and it was mostly downhill the next day. I bet that is just a beautiful, beautiful ride. Oh, yeah, that part of Idaho is really beautiful. And to just have 30 miles, oh, it sounds wonderful. Yeah, and downhill, which... And, and downhill is a bonus, <laughs> let's better, be honest. Yeah. yeah. She planned to leave between 10 a.m. and 11 a.m. so she could be back to the valley in time to go to work. By 6 p.m. the day of her bike ride, Kristen hadn't showed up in Lewiston. Kristen's family began to make phone calls around town and into the authorities. The police assured the David family that college students, you know, sometimes just take off, but the family resisted. They knew Kristen. She would not just take off on her own. The family organized a search and got to work. The community stepped in and the search grew and grew over time. After weeks of searching, there was nothing. There was no sign of Kristen or her bike. Kristen's mother believed that she would not get in a car with someone along the way. She's not one of those girls that would just, you know, hop in a car of a stranger. Like you in our other episode. (laughs) (laughs) She was a smart, cautious, independent young woman. Police didn't have much to go on, but they did follow every single lead that that they received. The strongest lead they had was from an eyewitness from the day that she disappeared. Yeah, and I can just say I think it's incredible that they even had an eyewitness. I mean, these are rural farming county roads. Yeah, that is pretty crazy. Yeah, so James Archibald was a farmer and witnessed something very peculiar on the day Kristen disappeared. He was driving down the road near his farm when he saw a brown van off the side of the road with Oregon license plates. Yeah, a man was walking down the side of the stopped van towards the back of the vehicle. Directly behind the van was a woman with blonde hair laying behind the van alongside a tipped-over bicycle with the rear wheel still spinning. That would be crazy to see. I know. I just can't even... I can't imagine that. just seems crazy. So she was not moving, and Archibald said he saw a big grin on the man's face. So creepy. Mm -hmm. This, of course, is a time before we had cell phones, so Mr. Archibald drove up the road to his house and did call emergency services. Yeah, a a little later that day, emergency services called him back, and they were actually quite upset. They said they dispatched paramedics right away to the location Mr. Archibald described, and there was no one there. There was no brown van. There was no woman, no bicycle. They found nothing. Yeah, Mr. Archibald tried to assist the police with the identification of the man, you know, that was there by the brown van, but he didn't get a good look. He did describe the man as shorter, probably under six feet tall, about 150 pounds, and between 25 and 35 years old. That's literally all they had to go on. Nothing was left from that. Yeah, that's a very vague description. Yeah, Mm mm-hmm. So on July 4th, 1981, a grizzly discovery was made right outside of Lewiston. Six and a half miles downstream from the Red Wolf Bridge along the banks of the river, a fisherman found a garbage bag. 
Inside the bag, wrapped in newspaper, he found a part of a human body. Looking around the area, he saw another bag just down the river, about 75 yards away. The bag held the same contents. I feel so bad for the person that found this. I mean, I'm sorry, but when you see a a garbage bag in a body of water, it's never a good thing. I can't imagine that feeling of opening it. That would just stick with you forever. I don't Mm -hmm. think you could ever get that image out of your mind. Mm -hmm. But, you know, obviously we're really grateful that it was found, obviously. So he immediately contacted law enforcement. The authorities responded and began a multi-day grid search of every square inch Peter Martin, Whitman County coroner, had just been elected four months before he found himself in the middle of this grotesque crime scene. He recounted the hectic search. He remembered law enforcement searched for miles up and down. They used boats to search the river, um, along with law enforcement, um, with waders actually walking through the, the shallow parts of the river. Officers used large fishing nets to pull in evidence and retrieve body parts. They in total found five bags with human body parts tightly wrapped in newspaper. Coroner Martin shared that during the examination of the body, he discovered that a knife had been used during the dismemberment. The perpetrator had experience with the knife and was not an amateur. Quote, it was done with purpose. It was done with knowledge, as he recalls. Coroner Martin speculates that the murder must have been a hunter or possibly a butcher Um, They definitely had knowledge on how to disarticulate a body. Now, here's a question. Um, I think it's important to think, like, what does it take to do that to someone? I I mean, besides being a sick individual, like, what do you think that that person would need? I mean, I feel like you'd have to... Be a, have been a hunter or mm-hmm. something and have done this a lot in the past and just been able to not really think about it as a human, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, like a, yeah, exactly, like a hunter. And I agree. I mean, I also think, too, is like you also need privacy. This person would need a place where they wouldn't be disturbed. I mean, this is not a quick crime to, to commit. So the police were thinking, okay, are they looking for a local Is this person a friend, a colleague, a family member? Um, The guy who runs the gas station or that friend at church? This is a very small community. So for these residents, this felt extremely personal. It was like a, a violation of trust in their community. The community, they were all looking over their shoulders and they would remain so for a really long time. Uh, Kristen's murder was taken extremely serious by law enforcement. The case was worked on by two states, three counties, and the FBI. And with all of these efforts, there was nothing found. Then, just a year later, Lewis Clark Valley was struck by another blow, reminding the residents that the protective bubble they once lived in was gone. Oh, and just how much more can this small little town take? Just one thing after another. I mean, I... We should post some pictures of it, but this valley, this is a very tight-knit, small-town valley. This is so much for their community to face. Yeah, so on the evening of Sunday, September 12th, 1982, stepsisters Christina Nelson, who was 21, and Brandy Miller, who was 18, disappeared. In this small town, another resident also vanished that evening as well, Stephen Parsall. So in one night, there were three young people who disappeared. Mm -hmm. These three disappearances are known as the Civic Theater Three. Lewiston Civic Center is at the heart of these disappearances. So it's a beautiful, beautiful building. It was constructed in 1904 as a Methodist church. It's like this beautiful sandstone, like almost like a Gothic style looking building. It towers over small Lewiston, almost as if it's like watching over the city. It's really a beautiful building. It's been a meeting house and a place where the community gathers to pray, worship, sing, perform, and create. Yeah, the building includes over 20 handcrafted stainless glass windows that have been meticulously cared for over the years. Um, Yet the rest of the building has fallen into disrepair. The Civic Theater was condemned in 2016 and has been left standing as the community debates whether or not to demolish the historic building or spend the millions to restore it to its former glory. So what do you think, Mel? I mean, I love old buildings, so I say save it, but I know it that it's so expensive. I know. What I'm about with you? you? I'm with you, though. you got to save those old buildings. Yeah. In 1982, Christina, Brandy, and Stephen all had one common denominator, the Civic 
theater. So we are going to stop here and take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Rocky Mountain Red Handed is brought to you by Balance of Nature. I love my balance of nature. I take it every morning and it makes me feel so good. I do not like to eat vegetables, so I take my balance of nature to be able to get in the nutrients that I need. Go to balanceofnature.com and use promo code REDHANDED for 35% off your first order. We call it three and three. I take my three capsules of veggies, three capsules of fruits, and it gives me all I need. So that's balance of nature, promo code REDHANDED. Thank you so much to our sponsors. We appreciate your support. So to get back to the story, Christina, Brandy, and Steven all spent time at the Civic Theater. They had known each other from different activities there. Steven was employed as a janitor, so that's why he had keys for access into the building that night. And Christina had worked there in the recent past. Brandy had also worked there on different productions. So this was like almost like a community center, like plays, concerts... That's uh, yeah. Yeah. That's kind of thing. Uh, other community activities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Christine's boyfriend contacted the police the evening of September 12th to report his girlfriend and step and stepsister had not returned home. They had left a handwritten note saying they had plans to walk to the grocery store and then they were planning on doing some laundry. After searching Christina's apartment, the police concluded that there was nothing out of the ordinary at the apartment. In the apartment, the police found the girls' purses with wallets. Nothing was stolen or disturbed. It looked as if the girls would have just stepped out for a minute. Yeah, just a normal Sunday night for them, you know, getting ready for the week at work. You know, you always do laundry on the weekend getting ready. The girls had left the apartment and apparently vanished in plain sight. The same evening, Stephen Pearsall had gone to a party with his girlfriend. After the party, Stephen asked his girlfriend to drop him off at the Civic Theater so that he could do some laundry and practice his beloved clarinet. Since he was employed as a janitor, he did have keys to the building, so he often practiced his clarinet in the theater. He did this so he wouldn't disturb his neighbors. What a good guy. Um, You know, he just lived there in the apartment building, so it probably would have been quite loud. And, you know, he really just enjoyed the time and the privacy there after hours. Mel, do you play any instruments? I played the piano growing up, but I can't play anymore. Yeah, me too, me too. I think it's really cool that Stephen kept playing the clarinet into adulthood. Not many people continue with an instrument. That's awesome. Yeah. A patrolman and a couple walking by the theater saw Stephen entering through the west door. That was the last anyone has ever reported seeing Stephen. Stephen's clarinet was found in the orchestra pit at the Civic Center as if he was interrupted in the middle of his practice time. Yeah, after Stephen's disappearance, the police searched his apartment as well. There they found nothing disturbed, his wallet and his keys to his car, and the car was parked in the parking lot, and there was an uncashed paycheck. The investigators for Christina, Brandy, and Stephen included a thorough search of the Civic Theater. The police found no sign of foul play or anything out of the ordinary. I mean, this is just crazy to have three people go missing in one night from one small town, from one location. Even like one location. They can all have that connection. Yeah, I agree. Lewiston and the families of the disappeared searched and searched the valley. Some thought that they had maybe taken off together for an adventure, but the families insisted that they would not take off like that. And actually, I have to agree. They, we know that two of them were in really good relationships. They're not going to leave town without their partners, right? Yeah. And they left their keys, their cars, their wallets at home. An uncashed paycheck. Yeah, yeah. they mm-hmm. wouldn't. They searched the river, the nearby highways and byways, and every inch of the valley. The families have continued to hang on to hope and faith, but the days and the weeks just added up. On March 19, 1984, Lewiston Police Department was alerted to a crime scene found just outside of Kendrick, Idaho. Two bodies were found in a grass plain just about 30 miles from Lewiston. The bodies were discovered in a very remote area without easy access. The two decomposed bodies, remember they had been out in the you know weather and, and elements, um, they were mostly skeletonized. Uh, they were identified as Christina Nelson and Brandy Miller. The stepsisters were discovered fully clothed, so items of clothing were found on the remains and around the bodies. Jewelry was found on the victims, as well as a type of cord or rope which um, was, could have been used as a type of binding on the victims. 
And what about Stephen Pearsall? Well, he was not found with the girls. None of his clothing, belongings, or his body were found at the site of the girls' recovery. He was still gone, nowhere to be found. Townspeople and investigators wondered if Stephen had something to do with the girls' disappearance. Um, I understand why people would question his involvement, but it just it doesn't feel quite right to me. What do you think, Becky? I, I don't think it feels right to, to me either. I mean, he was with his girlfriend that night. They went to a party. It just doesn't seem like, like he could have been an aggressor in that situation. I'm not buying it. Yeah, but I definitely see why they why they think yeah, that. Yeah, for sure. His friends and family adamantly denied his involvement with harming the girls. It wasn't even a possibility for Stephen to harm anyone, many of the friends thought. Stephen was a soft-hearted and kind artist. He was never known to have a temper or act aggressive towards people or animals. Also, Stephen's clarinet was left at the Civic Theater, and his family insisted that Steve would never leave his beloved instrument anywhere. He cherished it, and he was very protective of his clarinet. So during the investigation, police discovered there was another person who was at the Civic Theater the evening of the disappearances. He claimed to have not heard or seen anything that evening. His name has never been released by the police. But... In a small town, <laughs> Becky, yeah. anonymity is nearly impossible, if not totally impossible. Everyone knows everything about everyone. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So to align our story with the investigation, we are going to follow law enforcement's example and call him suspect because he is, of course, innocent until proven otherwise. So from now on in our story, we are just going to call the man suspect. A few days after the Civic Center 3 disappeared, the police conducted an interview with suspect. The detectives read suspect his rights and verified he understood them and began the interview. So here's a portion of the interview we want to read to you. So I'll be reading for the detective and Becky will be reading for suspect. Yeah. Okay. You were doing some work at the Civic Theater. Correct. I can't remember if I did much on stage, but I needed to get some rigging. So I went up into the, um, the, uh, the loft up in the attic up there. I took a fall. So side note, the attic of the theater is like... Any other unfinished attic space, there's like, you know, Mel, without how there's like designated walking areas. Yeah, they're like catwalks. And if you step outside these areas, it's very possible that you'll like fall through the plaster. Yeah, I actually just thought of like um, Chris's Vacation. Yes. Think that. <laughs> One okay? of my favorite That's, movies. Yes. Mm -hmm. So Suspect continued on recounting his evening with the detectives. So Suspect said, I went back downstairs and uh, lay down on the couch and stretched out. I had a medium case of the shakes. I just laid down there and dozed off. Reportedly, suspects said that he heard the phone ring, but he did not answer it. So detectives recounted that he was acting like Mel. He was acting extremely nervous and would not look at them in the eye. That type of thing. Yeah, and he was shaking and sweating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the interview continues, Mel. Detective, did you see Steve Pearsall that night? No, I have no uh, no notion that he even came into the building as far as I know. Did you talk to him? I didn't talk to anybody later on that night. So suspect denied seeing or hearing from Stephen, Christina, or Brandy. He did know all three of them personally. Yeah, detectives found suspect's interview very odd for several reasons. One of those reasons is that the suspect places himself asleep on the sofa in the green room. Yeah, this sofa is literally within like... 30 feet of the door that Stephen was seen entering and turning on the lights. Yeah, so how could the suspect not see him that evening? Yeah. Also, Stephen was planning on practicing his clarinet, and detectives found the clarinet out of its case and sitting in the orchestra pit, so he obviously played it. How would suspect not hear Stephen practicing? Yeah, I mean, like, Stephen is not a man that's, like, creeping around in the dark that evening. He's practicing a musical instrument in a concert hall. Yeah, yeah, and these amphitheaters, they're built with great acoustics, so they're made to carry and expand the sound so lots of people can hear it. Yeah, exactly. He was planning on doing the laundry. I mean, he was very comfortable in the civic theater. So it doesn't seem like he'd be sneaking quietly around. No, no, and he probably assumed when he entered the building that he was alone right. as well. Mm -hmm. So now that we know that Suspect was in the civic theater when Stephen entered the theater that evening... But that's not all we know. Law enforcement knew another detail about Suspect that tied him to an earlier disappearance in Lewis-Clark Valley. 
So Mel, remember Christina White, our sweet little girl, and her disappearance in 1979? Yeah. So Christina had spent the day with her friend Rose. They played at Rose's house while Rose's mom and boyfriend were there. Well, Suspect was actually the boyfriend of Rose's mom. Yeah, he was at the house with Christina White that day. The night of Christina White's disappearance, Suspect showed up at the police department and wanted to help find the girl. Police said he was, like, quite pushy that night, and so uh, law law enforcement asked him to take a polygraph test that evening. So, Mel, polygraphs. What do you think? Would you take one? No. I wouldn't either. I'm a terrible, I, no, I would not. I'm afraid, I'd get nervous, like, going through a drive-up window. I'm afraid that, like, I would, I would give, like, a a false positive, or. I would, yeah. I, as we know, polygraphs are not admissible in court for lots of reasons. They're very unreliable, so no, I would not take a polygraph. But with that said, it is. It is suspicious that he refused to take it. It is. It is suspicious when someone refuses to take a test, even though I don't think I would. Right. Yeah. Suspect said that he had obtained an attorney and refused to talk to the police and he left the station. In 1990, the law enforcement of Asotan County Sheriff's Department and Lewiston Police Department joined together for these cases. These departments both had suspect as their main person of interest in the cases of Christina White, Kristen David, Christina Nelson, Brandy Miller, and Stephen Pearsall. They began to work together to breathe new light into these cold cases. They discovered a new possibility in the Christina White case. Between Suspect's house, where Christina had been playing with her friend that day, and Christina's home, you know, where her mom, where she lived with her mom, well, Suspect actually owned another house that was vacant at that time. Here's a theory that has been floated around by law enforcement and residents, and there's a lot of possibility to it. Yeah, so remember, Christina wasn't feeling well the day she disappeared. She had become overheated and was feeling very fatigued. So her mother didn't have a car at the time. So she told Christina to lay down with a cold cloth, get some rest, get feeling better at Rose's house, and then bike home. Well, what if Suspect, who was the father figure of this home, had offered her a ride? He would have been like a trusted adult in Christina's eyes. He could have offered to give Christina a ride home and then found an excuse to stop at this vacant house and lured Christina inside. Now the home had privacy and had an unfinished basement with partial dirt floors. This house would have given him the opportunity and the environment to commit a crime. Plus, suspect did do a lot of construction and actually poured concrete in the basement after Christina's disappearance. Mm. Never a good thing. Again, remember, Christina's bike has never been found, so it had to be hidden somewhere pretty quickly after her disappearance. A basement would be a pretty good hiding spot. Yeah, and this would this would give him the privacy and the time to mm-hmm. do what he needed to do. Yeah. Exactly. Law enforcement searched the basement of this house in the early 1990s. So this was, what, 10-plus years after she disappeared. They brought in cadaver dogs and ground-penetrating radar for this search. Man, those police dogs are so amazing, the things that they can do. I even, just love them. Even after years and years, it's just amazing what they're capable of. The radar indicated an area in the basement that was approximately six feet by eight feet. Law enforcement dug up the indicated area and nothing was found. After the search, suspect put the house up for sale. Of course he did, right? Yeah, I'm sure he wasn't really popular around the Mm -hmm. neighborhood or the town at this point. Yep. A woman reported to the police that she had gone to an open house for this home. The suspect walked her through the home and made several comments about the beautiful basement and all the work he had done down there and how she really must see the basement. So as they walked towards the basement stairs, she turned around to say something to him and she saw him like quickly hiding his hand. She asked him what he had in his hand and he lied and said nothing. So she kept at him, didn't let him just hide it, and he finally showed her what he had in his hand. It was like a large ornamental end of a bedpost, Mel. Which just is such a weird thing to carry around. Why would he do that? Well, and let alone hiding it. And hiding it. Yeah, it's bizarre behavior. Yeah. Suspect asked the woman touring the house who knew that she was here looking at the house. Which, again, is a really weird question. She told him, of course, that a lot of people knew she was at the house. I don't know if that was true or not, but I would be saying the same thing. I agree. After that revelation, he lost interest in showing her the house and she got out of there quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, look, like I'm feeling some big red flags 
from this guy. Yep. Mm -hmm. So Suspect also owned a dome house. Have you seen these type of houses now? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He owned a dome house there in Lewis Clark Valley. It was like a really unique house in the shape of a dome, of course. The Asoton County Sheriff would get phone calls from Suspect's neighbors reporting odd behavior, um, such as digging in the middle of the night on the property of the dome house. Yes. So strange. Why would you be digging on multiple occasions by moonlight? That's very strange. Yeah, this guy. I don't know. During the mid-1990s, the sheriff's department did a search at this property as well, including jack hammering and removal of concrete. But again, nothing was found. Time continued to march on in the Lewis-Clark Valley. In the middle of Lewiston hangs a large digital billboard that everyone passes every single day. Large pictures of each of the five victims shine brightly day and night, reminding the town of their deaths and disappearances. The billboard has a call to action. It says in really big, bold letters, If you have any information, contact Detective Jackie Nichols. She continued to press forward on these five cases and believed that they are linked somehow. So let's just take a second to recap. We have a lot of information, a lot of details we've been talking about. This is five different cases in one episode, so we know this is a lot. It's a lot of information to remember. Yeah, 40 years have passed since these cases began. Between 1979 and 1982, Lewis Clark Valley had five cases of either disappearances or murdered victims. Three victims' bodies were located after being murdered, and two missing people are still listed as disappearances. In 1979, Christina White disappeared with no trace. Her bicycle that she was supposed to have ridden home was never found. Yeah, Christina spent the afternoon in Suspect's home, remember, and he was the boyfriend of her friend's mother. In 1982, Brandy Miller, Christina Nelson, and Stephen Pearsall all disappeared in the same evening. Yeah, the girls were out walking in town, and it is believed that they may have stopped by the Civic Theater to say hello to friends. That was a pretty common thing to do. Suspects spent the evening and the entire night at the Civic Theater. Stephen was last seen entering the Civic Theater. He um, has never been seen or heard from since that night. Now remember, his clarinet was left found, you know, in the orchestra pit, like he'd been interrupted during his practice time. Suspect says that he never saw or heard Stephen that night. And again, like we talked about, I think this is close to impossible. Agree, agree. So Brandy and Christina's bodies were found, remember, dumped about 30 miles outside of town several months, and Stephen is still missing. All three victims either worked with or spent time with suspect at Civic Theater. They all knew each other. Now, remember, we have one victim in the Lewis Clark Valley murders that is, you know, somewhat different. In 1981, Kristen David was planning on riding her bike from Moscow to Lewis Clark Valley. She was found murdered and dismembered with her body dumped in the Snake River. We don't know what her cause of death was, and her dismemberment is kind of somewhat an anomaly. None of the other victims were dismembered or disfigured. Christian's case is, you know, very different from the others in that way. Yeah, dismemberment really is very different when you find a body that way. Yeah, it's like an entirely, it's like next level evil. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We don't know if she knew suspect, but there is a good possibility that they did know each other. Yeah, it's a small community, yeah. The witness who saw the man with the brown van next to the cyclist laying on the road did not give a description that is similar to a suspect at all. I think it's important that we remember that. The two men, the van guy and suspect, allegedly do not have similar physical features. So police are not sure if Kristen's case is as connected as the others, but they you know, obviously are not eliminating any possibility at this point. So Mel, let's take our last break. Rocky Mountain Red-Handed is brought to you by Balance of Nature. I love my Balance of Nature. I take it every morning and it makes me feel so good. I do not like to eat vegetables, so I take my Balance of Nature to be able to get in the nutrients that I need. Go to balanceofnature.com and use promo code REDHANDED for 35% off your first order. We call it three and three. I take my three capsules of veggies, three capsules of fruits, and it gives me all I need. So that's Balance of Nature, promo code REDHANDED. A big thank you to our sponsors. So the man that we've been calling Suspect is very well known throughout the Lewis Clark Valley and across the World Wide Web. Yeah, if you want to know more information, including a name, 
it's out there. Like we don't want to like hide that fact, but it's very much out there. Yeah. Former friends and neighbors describe him as friendly, social, and a lover of the arts. Yeah. He was described as theatrical and eccentric and he loved to like burst out into song. He was described as theatrical and like very eccentric and he would like known to be burst out into song and he is very large in stature and he like people say he almost looks has like a biker look you know mel yeah in march of 1984 suspect sat down with police for an official second interview during this interview suspect went into more detail and described his evening on september 12th 1982 so bear with us we are going to theorize here for a minute yeah we're gonna like try to make sense of suspect's timeline which is a little difficult at times and along with the movement we know our victims made that night okay the stepsisters brandy and christina left christina's apartment and headed to safeway grocery store police believe the girls walked down third avenue and through a shortcut at pioneer park they allegedly arrived in the area of Safeway about 9 p.m. ish. At about the same time and located practically next door to Safeway, suspect drove his gold-colored 1972 Camaro to Red Baron Pizza in Lewiston. Do you remember Red Baron Pizza? I do. Yeah. I remember I had a birthday party there. Did you really? <laughs> yeah. So suspect said he watched a movie at the restaurant while he drank a few beers. Suspect said the movie ended at 11 p.m., but law enforcement looked into this statement and discovered that the movie was a longer film and it actually didn't end until about midnight. Okay, that's a huge change to his story. This like completely changes the timeline. It doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal, but it really does shift the circumstances for the rest of the evening. After watching the movie at Red Baron, suspect said he decided to head over to the Civic Center to do some work. Yeah, now law enforcement believes that suspect ran into the girls before he watched the movie at Red Baron Pizza. This is a, a good possibility. Remember, the girls were walking into Safeway Grocery right next door to Red Baron at the same time that he was arriving. Police believe suspect told the girls to like come on by the Civic Theater later that night. And that's maybe why the girls stopped by. They had possibly made plans with suspect earlier in the evening. Another possibility is suspect could have offered the girls a ride in his car. Remember, they were friends and the girls trusted him. They they really thought that they were safe with this man and they probably thought, why not? Yeah, why not? Now, remember, Stephen Parcell was dropped off by his girlfriend at Civic Theater at midnight. So he probably arrived a little before suspect showed up at the theater to do that work. The two men arriving about the same time makes it even more likely that they would have seen or heard each other very easily. Yeah, they wouldn't have been like settled in what they were doing. Yeah. So, yeah, suspect continues to deny seeing or even hearing Stephen and his clarinet that night. A little after midnight, suspect said he moved his vehicle from the front of the theater to the back so that he could more easily get to the tools in his car. So a theory that Detective Jackie Nichols has is, okay, there's a possibility that he wasn't moving his car for the tools, but possibly loading bodies into his car. The Civic Center has two very large windows in the back of the theater. And these huge windows are, are seriously just mere inches off the ground and would really be an ideal location to back up a car up to the window and easily move victims. In fact, it actually even has like fencing on both sides. So it would really give that privacy needed. Suspect told the detectives that he was up in the attic space doing some work and fell off of the catwalk and hurt himself. Yeah, we heard that. And then he stated he went downstairs to the green room and lay down to get some sleep. Suspect told police he fell asleep and didn't wake up until a little after 5 a.m., I mean, it seems weird that he would have slept there all night, right? On the couch after he'd been hurt. Seems strange. We're not toddlers. I don't think, I don't know, at least adults that I know don't randomly fall asleep places. And sleep all night. It's weird. Seems like a long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So his wife told law enforcement that this was the one and only time where he stayed out all night. So it's safe to say that the night of September 12th, 1982 was a very odd night with strange behavior from suspect. Suspect said he began to drive home, but then realized his wife would already be gone for work. So he decided to turn around and return to the theater, which again, bizarre. 
this does seem very odd. Maybe he's trying to give a reason that someone maybe would have witnessed him leaving or entering the Civic Theater around this time. Like accounting for his movements. Yeah. It sounds like a good possibility. Plus, like, I'm sorry, like he's had no food, no shower, and he goes right back to work. Yeah, it's weird. Mm -hmm. So suspect had changed his story several times and has been caught lying to the police. Yet he continues to refuse any responsibility in the death and disappearances of the Lewis Clark Valley murders. So throughout his life, suspect had seemed to just pop up and, you know, just happens to be around while people disappear or wind up dead. I mean, he is either very unlucky or he's very dangerous and a serial killer. Mm -hmm. Detective Nichols and others have tracked down several victims that happened to cross paths with suspect and ended up missing or deceased. So we are going to share a few run-ins that suspect has had during his life. Now it just, it's just strange. Things just seem to happen around this guy. Here is a story of a close call with suspect. So Crystal Glass Hicks grew up in Asotin her entire life. She doesn't remember a time where there were not rumors of a boogeyman in Lewis Clark Valley. It was just kind of part of the community. In 1996, she was a younger teenager on a camping trip with her family not far from Lewis Clark Valley. The family had spent time fishing and camping on the nearby river. So Crystal was walking alone in a very remote part Um, of the wilderness and a man pulled up in a pickup truck he said he was lost and he asked her for directions i always tell my kids mel like adults don't ask for help from kids yeah i think we're kind of like moving away from stranger danger right Mm because it can even be like somebody that you know but adults don't ask for help whether you know yeah Mm -hmm. yeah not from kids exactly So she was just like a young girl and um, she knew this wasn't right. So she told him she couldn't help, but her family was just below this bridge that was just up the road, right down the road. He said he would give her a ride to her family and told her to get in the truck. So alarm bells are going off, luckily, um, because her family was like right there. It wasn't far away, but the family was kind of off the road. So at first he couldn't see them. And she knew. She just felt immediately just completely creeped out by this guy. I'm so glad. Mm -hmm. She refused to get in his car and started walking towards her father. So at this time, the man in the truck spots her father down, you know, off by the river. And he just quickly took off. Most of her family had plans to leave that day except for Crystal's cousin and his wife. So Crystal and her family leave. And throughout the night, Crystal's cousin and his wife spot a man stalking around the campsite and this isn't like a public campsite this is just like a random place they just decided to camp they can see him hiding in the trees and spying them around the campfire this is so creepy it's like Mm -hmm. stories that we used to like scary stories we used to tell at like girls camp yeah like it's an urban legend it sounds like an urban legend doesn't it yeah so crystal's cousin ended up going to the truck and grabbing his pistol just in case they needed to use it the couple was so uncomfortable that they immediately started to pack up and they actually left the campsite in the middle of the night yeah so this is where it gets even creepier shortly after their camp night scare the couple just went to a street fair at a nearby town and they were just having a nice nice day and they saw a band performing they recognized one of the band members as the man that had stalked around their campsite in the middle of the night i can't imagine my heart would just drop so one of their friends who was there at the street fair with them she was married to a lewiston detective at the time she told them that the man the couple had pointed out to her was suspect the one and only suspect in the murders around the lewis clark valley so at this time mel it's like really apparent that people know something's up with this guy like town knows that he's not a good guy to be around don't you think yeah definitely Mm -hmm. they all are aware that there's a lot of red flags there's a lot of weird things going on with Mm -hmm. him and now he's stalking random campers in the wilderness it's just weird it's weird so next we're going to go over to a case in nampa idaho On February 24th, 1982, at about 8.30 a.m., Darylin Johnson, who was just nine years old, left her home and started her routine walk to school. Unfortunately, she never made it to school that day. She disappeared without a trace until three days later. Fishermen were enjoying the Snake River on February 27th and came across Darylin's body lying along the banks of the river. Darylin had been violated and killed, and this 
this death does tie back to suspect. Yeah, Darylin's body was actually found extremely close to a piece of property that suspect owned in Nampa. Mm -hmm. She wasn't on private property when she was found, but his property was just like right there. He was very familiar with this rural area. This portion of the river was rarely visited and um, she was just found among the river reeds right there. Darylin's murderer has never been found. Her case is still unsolved. Napa is another small Idaho town. I I can imagine this case must have just ripped that town apart. Yeah, definitely. Nine-year-old girl. Mm -hmm. So next we're going to um, discuss a case from suspect's teen years. So in Chicago on August 1st, 1963, eight-year-old Diane Taylor got up for the day and prepared to head down to the YMCA for summer school classes. Her mother was a single parent and raised Diane on her own. So while school was not in session during the summer months, Diane spent her days at the YMCA. Yeah, the mother and daughter spent the early morning hours together and Rita, Diane's mother, left for work about 9.30 a.m. Diane left shortly after her mom to walk the five blocks and she spent the day in summer school preparing for the upcoming year of fourth grade. She was last seen at the YMCA that day. Three days later, Diane Taylor's body was found on a cement apron outside a nearby building. Yeah, she'd been sexually assaulted and had many wounds that we won't get into. Yeah, her fatal injury was a stab wound in her heart. Suspect had grown up in the same Chicago neighborhood, and he had actually known Diane quite well. In fact, he spent the day with Diane on her last day that she was seen. He was one of Diane's youth counselors at the YMCA now. This is heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. Suspect was questioned by the Chicago police and he was released. He was 15 years old at the time of Diane's attack, so he was really young. <sighs> I, I, I don't know anyone who has this many weird disappearances and death intersect in their life. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, and we don't know if he is tied to this murder, but... If it is, that means he started killing at 15. That's so young. And mm -hmm. to be around so many people that have been murdered or disappeared is weird. Yeah. I mean, this this episode does have a lot of conjecture. But, I mean, we are seeing a pattern. Yeah. Don't you think? Agreed. Yeah. Um, so next, we're going to return back to Lewiston and the Civic Center. So in 1987, Claudette Volvia was an actor at the Civic Theater in Lewiston, Idaho, and that's where she crossed paths with Suspect while acting in a play. Suspect was married at the time, yet he and Claudette began a romantic affair. She was quite a bit younger than him, and this relationship was like her first true romantic relationship. They were in a relationship for several months until Claudette's death. Suspect discovered her body and claimed that she had died by suicide. So he is the one that found her. Many of Claudette's friends do not believe she would have taken her own life. You know, she was optimistic, cheery, and she was like making grand plans for the future. She did not speak to anyone about suicide ideation or depression. Claudette's cause of death remains a suicide. I mean, like, we, Mel, don't you think, like, we never know what's going on in someone's mind, but she sounds like she was like looking towards the future you yeah. know i mean i totally agree with everything you're saying if you're making plans for the future most likely you're not going to take your own mm -hmm. life but again mental illness is so there's so much that goes into it that we don't understand all of it so it's hard to say for sure yeah you're exactly right <laughs> lastly suspect found himself in a situation that was hard to get out of yeah this is a crazy one on june 5th 1972 a group of teenagers and was enjoying the afternoon um, in the sunshine on the Santa Cruz boardwalk. So Antoinette and Nino was with her boyfriend, her brother, and his girlfriend. At some point that evening, Antoinette and her boyfriend had gotten into like a little disagreement, a little lover's spat. And so they sat down on the beach in the warm sand to talk it out. Her boyfriend decided they needed a few minutes apart from each other and told Antoinette to take some time to herself and then come find them after she had calmed down. When closing time of the boardwalk approached, the three teens um, tried to go and find Antoinette, but she was still gone. She was missing. A few hours later, around 3.30 a.m., two people came across a body floating in the water just offshore. The police were immediately called in and recovered the body. It was Antoinette. She had no signs of trauma and no visible injuries. 
So Antoinette had all of her jewelry still on. She had a gold watch on and a cross necklace. Yet she was found naked in the water. Yeah, police spent hours searching the beach and the waters, and they never located even a single piece of clothing. None. Despite the missing clothing, Antoinette and Nino's death was ruled a suicide by drowning, and her body was turned over to Willow Glen Mortuary in San Jose for funeral services. Okay, so this is weird to me. If it was suicide, where is her clothing? Yeah, it's very weird to to take off all your clothes before you commit suicide. And she would have had to hide them somewhere so well, well that they were never found. Yeah, and I, I, with multiple pieces of clothing, I, I don't think that they're all just going to disappear. It yeah. just, it doesn't, doesn't sit right with me. I agree. So the night before Antoinette's funeral, her body was prepared and laid out for her viewing. During the middle of the night, the mortuary owner and operator, who lived just above the mortuary with his family, heard some suspicious noises and ran downstairs to investigate. There, wearing all-black clothing, carrying a large hunting knife, a camera, Melanie, a camera, and a flashlight, the funeral director saw suspect. He was attempting to break into the mortuary through a window. The mortuary owner asked him what he was doing, and Suspect answered him. He said he was trying to break in so that he could see his girlfriend one last time. His girlfriend! Suspect did not know or he had never even met Antoinette. I I don't even know what we can say about this case. This is just bizarre. It is so bizarre. It's almost like he has this fantasy in his head that he knows Antoinette and yeah. this he thinks they have this deep connection or something. So weird. Years later, while being interviewed for the Lewis Clark Valley murders, Suspect described this incident as being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Any way you look at it, Suspect seems to have a lot of people missing or murdered in his orbit. Yeah, I mean, how many attempts, disappearance, and murders have we discussed today? What is it, like 10? Yeah, it's like, uh, yeah, it would be 10. It would be 10. And, and that's what we know of. That's the scary thing. It could be more. The case of the five Lewis Clark Valley victims have all been turned over to the FBI, and they are currently pursuing an investigation to hopefully prosecute whoever is responsible for these deaths and disappearances. At this point, there is limited physical evidence for three of the victims from Lewis Clark Valley. Law enforcement has evidence consisting of hair samples and the newspaper that wrapped um, Kristen David's remains. Yeah, they also have the bindings, clothing, and jewelry found with Christina Nelson and Brandy Miller's bodies. So it's good that they have preserved some of that evidence. Mm -hmm. So, um, but none of the evidence has been examined since the original investigation. Local law enforcement is hopeful that with modern DNA technology, it, there may be some answers for these cases. Oh my gosh, let's cross our fingers on that. So, Mel, what do you think? It's it's unique for serial killers to kill people they are familiar with. You know, usually it's just random outside, but, you know, it's yeah. not unheard of. Yeah, and with this being a small town, um, most people kind of know everyone. Mm -hmm. So it's just possible that this is where he lived and he was just looking for prey and yeah. he just knew everybody. Yeah, it's like his hunting ground. Yeah. yeah. So Suspect is now in his 60s. He is retired and just living his life. He has never been charged with any crimes connected to the five cases from 1979 to 1982. Or the other cases we mentioned as well. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If you have any information regarding the murders of Kristen David, Brandy Miller, or Christina Nelson, or the disappearances of Christina White and Stephen Purcell, please speak up. You can contact a Stoughton County Sheriff's Office Detective Jackie Nichols at 509-243-4717 or jnichols at co.asotin.wa.us, and we will also put those in our show notes so that you can have access mm -hmm. to those. So, Rocky Mountain listeners, this is, case is, like, really in your hands. Please, someone knows something out there. Let's share this case on social media. Let's spread the word. 
these cases really need to be solved and closed, it would be great to be able to give these families the peace that they deserve. So please share with your friends. Um, all, as always with all of our cases, our prayers go out to the families of all the victims that we discussed today. We are hopeful that these families will be able to have answers hopefully sooner rather than later. Yeah, they really do deserve those answers. And you know what? The communities deserve those answers. Yeah. And I want to mention, I cannot recommend the documentary Cold Valley enough. It is what really got me interested in this case a few years ago. Um, I rewatched it while re while researching this script. So go check it out. It's on Prime Cold Valley. It is awesome. You'll, you'll see Jackie Nichols in that. Yeah, which is awesome. So now we are going to move on to our segment that we're going to do at the end, Rocky Mountain Redemption, right? Mm -hmm. And so we're going to have some good news from Idaho now. Yeah, Idaho, we love you. Yeah, so here's a great story from Idaho Falls. Um, courtesy of the Good News Network. Um, Dane Entz and his wife were returning from a weekend getaway to celebrate their anniversary. They were crossing Johns Hole Bridge in Idaho Falls, Idaho, the very spot where the couple had their first date when they came upon the scene of what would be another life-altering moment. Yeah, while looking down from the bridge, Dane's wife saw a car driving down the boat ramp and into the water. When his wife called 911, Dane jumped out of the car, climbed a barbed wire fence, and ran to the boat launch. He said he saw the car sinking into the Snake River, which is known for its dangerous undertow. Um, a woman emerged from the car, and he hollered to her asking if she was okay. She then began swimming away from shore and told Dane that she didn't want to live anymore. Dane told her, I don't know who you are, but I'm here, and I love you, and I'm going to help you. While the river swallowed up her car, he quickly swam approximately 120 feet from the shore to pull the woman back to the bank. He was risking freezing water conditions and outdoor temperatures of 19 degrees. Okay, we've got 19 degrees, freezing cold water, and he swam 120 feet. I know, that's oh amazing. Oh my gosh. The first responders arrived to render aid and transported the patient to the hospital in stable condition. Um, for a mental health evaluation and additional assistance. They also pulled out the submerged car from the river. And what a hero he is in this situation to jump in that freezing cold water. Yeah, he's amazing. Yeah, so don't forget to share this incredible case with your friends. So Lewis Clark Valley really does need our help. Let's not forget Christina, Kristen, Brandy, Christina, and Stephen. Yeah, don't forget to share this incredible case with friends. And Mel, until next time. Keep, Keep your hands clean. Just a quick reminder to follow us on social media. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Rocky Mountain Red Handed. RMRH Podcast on Twitter. Check out our social medias. We post case notes, pictures, discussion topics, and all things true crime. We want to stay connected with you. Also, send us your case suggestions. We cover true crime cases from the Rocky Mountain region. You can reach us at RockyMountainRedHanded at gmail.com. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on your platform of choice. Thanks for being a part of Rocky Mountain Red Handed.